0: Welcome to the Experto Crete podcast. I'm your host, Lee Silverberg, online editor of the Minnesota Law Review, Volume 106. Today with me, I have Professor Bennett Capers, and today we're going to be discussing his article, The Law School is a White Space, which is perhaps my favorite article that we're publishing in this volume. Professor Capers, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Lee, for having me. Excited to have you on. Um, you know, I think that before we start, I personally would love to talk with you about your article and how your background as an academic and your work before academia, even as a law school student and before that, really kind of catalyzed into writing this piece.
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna, (laughs) I think I should start off by saying I sort of view myself as an accidental law professor. Um, And in fact, I probably also view myself as an accidental lawyer um and in fact since this since this uh episode is about my you know law schools of white space um contribution I should go back even further and sort of say that um you know I grew up in an area that was decidedly a black space um black neighborhood went to all black schools until my senior year of uh, high school when I transferred um And uh, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, which, you know, is about half white, half black, Um, and, uh, you know, sort of racially divided. At least it was very much when I was growing up. Um, And basically, uh, all the whites in town went to private schools. (laughs) But in a way, it was still very close. So the black high school I went to, for example, had about 300 students. Uh, Two blocks away in one direction was a white private high school and four blocks away in a different direction was another uh, white private high school. So I guess growing up in that environment, um, I couldn't help but think in terms of white spaces and black spaces. And I think that thinking carried or stayed with me when I went to Princeton as an undergrad and then Columbia Law School for um, law school. So um, you know, I think all of that sort of like informed my thinking about uh the law school as a white space. And I should add, if I can, uh there was one title that I sort of kept thinking about as I was writing this piece. And I don't even know if I referenced it in the um in my essay, um, but it was sort of a pretty big book when I was in college, I guess. And the book is called Um why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria <laughs> It's by a woman named beverly daniel tatum and i have to admit i still haven't read the book but the title always intrigued me um especially since it seemed like there was another question that was implicit that should also be asked which is well why are all the white students sitting together in the cafeteria because you know it sort of takes two to tangle. Um, but anyway that's that's a little bit of my background and a little bit about um how I came to start thinking in terms of uh, various places of being as being different types of spaces
0: for different types of people. I guess jumping off that point, your article really goes through these interrelated experiences that you had and that other authors have discussed as part of, um, I would say almost an interconnected consciousness of experience. And I'm wondering if you had any particular experiences both growing up in law school and as an academic that really generated this piece as it stands today?
1: Um, I think it was sort of, uh, you know, it's it's sort of a uh, recurring phenomenon <laughs> um, in a way. Um, you know, I think I'm constantly sort of being reminded about uh, you know, um, how spaces are and and where I fit in in those spaces, where I don't fit in, where I do fit in. Um, so just extra stuff that you would never know from probably any of my scholarship. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up playing the violin. I at one point I was playing with the Charleston <laughs> Symphony Orchestra um, and I played throughout uh, at least my first couple of years in college. I've like always been immersed in classical music and, you know, I also love opera. I, I go to the Met Opera in New York, um, and I'm very much aware that people are looking at me as a curiosity because of the color of my skin. Like they don't expect me to be there, and it's the same when I go to the New York Philharmonic. So, you know, I'm I'm constantly being reminded of various spaces belonging to various people. You know, and the same thing happens to law school. So and you know, I, I don't think my experience is unique. I think you could probably ask almost any black person about experiences in law school. Um, you know, and it's sort of interesting being a, a law professor and you walk in the building and the security guard is like, Oh, are you new here? Do you work in the kitchen? You know, <laughs> so that, that kind of stuff is not, you know, it's, it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to lots of people. So um, you know there's just sort of expectations um you know early on when i uh, first joined the academy um i was asked to you know blog for a week about various whatever i wanted to blog about and i just for fun blogged um what does a law professor look like and i just really wanted to people think like oh we always a picture like older men in tweed jackets and the the blog piece wasn't explicitly about race like I'm not even sure at that point in my career I even mentioned race I was just like raising the issue like do we already have images about what law professors look like and what happens when those images are so ingrained and it's the same for students it's the same for everything
0: I think that that makes quite a lot of sense um, for all of us that have watched the paper chase no one walks into the paper chase and looks around and they say ah yes a black man who is incredibly talented as an academic is the one teaching the class. No, no, that, that is not who is teaching the class at Harvard Law in that movie. Yes. And indeed, I think most people expect to see the kind of professor that they see in that movie. So yes. I'm, I'm definitely glad that you engaged in that blog and kind of changing the, not just the conversation, but the consciousness around the conversation, I think is very valuable. But moving into this piece, because we've we talked quite a bit about the background to it, I really want to just give you the space to talk about what is a white space and what do you mean by moving from a white space to italicized a white space?
1: Um. So it's interesting. So I, I of the concept from um, Elijah Anderson, who teaches as a Yale sociologist. And he's really the one who sort of like made the term white space, which I think was already common and like, you know, common usage and brought it into academia. Um. You know, and he defines it in a particular way, um, and which I include in my um, contribution to the Minnesota Law Review. When I think of it, I sort of think of it as very similar. Um, I think what I'm thinking of is that, you know, often because of, but um, not often, often enough because of like historical baggage or whatever. There are this, these spaces that we associate with particular groups. Um, so, um, you know, they're male spaces, they're female spaces. In, in my Law School's White Space piece, I talked about, you know, what it must have felt like when, you know, Justice O'Connor or, you know, Ginsburg joined the Supreme Court, you know, which probably still feels like a very male space. Um, or, you know, when Thurgood Marshall joined it, it probably at that time felt very white and male. Um, so I think we just have these associations with spaces. But for me, it also implies a type, I think, of um, ownership might be too strong a word. Um, but I think you know what I mean. It's sort of like the, uh, the sort of assumption like, oh, this is ours. Um, this belongs to us, is sort of our space. And others who enter it might be entirely welcome They might not be welcome but they might be entirely welcome but still i think sort of the sensibility is like oh they're coming into our space um so it's not their space it's our space and uh you know just for the record uh you know uh my 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 piece is called the law school is a white space um but they're also black spaces they're Catholic spaces, the Jewish spaces. I just think because of the history of law schools, there's also this sort of association with law schools as being white spaces, even after, or even you know, separate and apart from the demographics of the students or the staff um, or anything else.
0: Jumping off that point, I think that it makes a lot of sense in terms of a feeling of belongingness or a feeling of comfort, let's say, that individuals walking into a space where they feel that is not theirs. And in your pa- or paper, I should say, you really do show that there are different parts of the law school that really are separate and apart from the demographics that inculcate this idea that this is not for me, or this is supposed to be for others and then not for me. You point to a bunch of them, could you walk through maybe some of your favorite examples? and? how they really factor in your head into the creation of a space as for and not for someone
1: so in the paper you know um you know after talking about demographics i sort of bring up other things like just the architecture just the very you know collegiate gothic style of a lot of schools um seems very sort of like western european i mean and that's not accidental i mean that's by design um so even the architecture could feel like a place like, oh, this was designed um, for a particular group of people. Um, and it, trust me, I mean, as a, as a as when I was a black student, I felt that. I, I certainly felt that as an undergrad at Princeton, that it's filled with uh, that kind of architecture. Um, but for me, it's other things as well. It's the Socratic method, uh, which I talk about a little bit. But for me, I think the most interesting thing that I felt as a student um, was sort of the the portraits on the wall um, and sort of walking into a building and sort of being surrounded by all these portraits of, you know, um, prior deans, distinguished jurists and, you know, my going to law school at a time when um, all of those portraits were of men and they were all of white men. Um, and, you know, one sort of, Feels like oh this you know certain people in the law school are the sort of like the inheritors of that, <laughs> and other people are not. Uh, and so you know there there was just that feeling of like okay who, who is this law school really for? Um, and uh, you know did the people who build this who built this law school even have people like me in mind? Um, could they have had people like me in mind? So,
0: On that point of keeping individuals in mind, one of the points that you made that for me was probably not just the most salient, but it really resonated with me is how law school is taught and the mode of thinking that law school inculcates. And I'm wondering, at my school, for example, the University of Minnesota has a wonderful new program called RISE that was created by a friend of mine and someone I consider a mentor. And it really tries to inquire into that mode of teaching the kinds of thought that one needs to dissociate themselves with their prior experiences to understand and i'm curious how does that factor into the idea of law school as a white space in the i would say the former sense that you use in your paper
1: yeah so it does in in various ways i mean you know and this is something uh i Personally, still wrestle with. Like, how do we teach in ways that um, don't privilege sort of uh, a particular hierarchy, um, um, a particular status quo? Um, I mean, for me, even the idea of sort of like standing at a lecture, uh, at a podium, and sort of lecturing down to students um, or using the Socratic method, which involves um um you know my elizabeth mertz has done this great research on sort of what gets privileged and what doesn't and answers um and how it narrows and cabins what we want students to think about that like all of those things are going on in a way that doesn't seem to encourage uh different ways of looking at things so one of the first things that we sort of do to students is we sort of cabin what matters in a case um, from what doesn't and we are communicating to students like oh don't don't care about the actual plaintiff or the actual defendant um, but don't care about you know any of the uh, social economic background to the um, opinion um, but basically, this is what you need to focus on. Um and you know, be internalized that. I mean, by the time you've finished your first semester or your first year of law school, I think a lot of students just take it for granted, like, okay, this is what matters in the law. And clearly, if my professor says this is what matters, it must be right. Um, so I'm still wrestling with how we push back against that. Um how we can sort of teach law in a way where um, it's not so narrow. It's not so narrow.
0: I certainly think it's difficult to do that. I, I think that as a law school student myself, right, what I see usually is that this privileging goes along with the way that we think about the law as the law. And that idea of inculcating the law to law students to think like lawyers And one of the first things that I had an issue with was before I came to law school, I worked with judges at Shelby County District Court in Memphis, Tennessee, and I loved the work that I got to do there. And for them, it was very, very much fact-based. I get to law school, we talk about case precedent, where the law is going, case lines, and we pretty much leave out the plaintiff and the defendant. And the facts matter, of course, but really it's that holding and takeaway. And it, it feels so ingrained. And so I, as a law school student, it really does make sense to me that it would be difficult to take that method and move it away towards the individual suing because that is what it looked like for me before I came to law school. And then law school absolutely just raised that to the ground. And I imagine it's probably true for many people. Absolutely. I I could not agree more.
1: Um, I mean, the other thing that we do in law school... And maybe it's just my experience. Maybe it's just like my experience as a student and my experience as a professor. Uh, but you know, let me let me use criminal law as an example because it's a one L course. Everybody takes it. Uh, you know, n- so much of criminal law is like okay, mens rea, actus reus, you know, causation, justifications, defenses, excuses. Um, I've looked at a lot of criminal law casebooks there tends to be very little on sort of like, well, why is this even a crime? Um, And there tends to be very little on, well, what are the limits in creating new crimes or sort of saying that something shouldn't be a crime at all? It's almost like criminal law takes the law as a given. (laughs) And a lot of law school, I think, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, obviously, the whole goal of law school is not just to teach people what the law is, but also to teach them how they can push back against the law. But it seems to me that even that pushing back is not like, you know, how do you upend the law? It's not sort of like, you know, you know, in in the piece I talk about, you know, rearranging apples on the apple cart versus upending the apple cart altogether. seems like a lot of law school is sort of like, oh, how can you rearrange apples in the apple cart um i have to mention um uh i'm working on a uh colloquium on subversive lawyering and i just read one of the contributions for that uh subversive lawyering um colloquium and a lot of it is actually about how legal education can be more subversive and one of the arguments is you know bringing more law to the people like breaking down the walls of law schools but actually like you know, having everyone learn the basics of the law, elementary school, high school, you know, college, whatever. Um, And it occurred to me in reading it, like so many of the ideas were great, but they were really like teaching people like, oh, how they can um, understand the law so that they could use the law or push against the law. But there was really nothing in the essay, at least the version I read, about teaching people that they could actually play a role in creating the law and changing the law Um, and i don't know if we to my mind i wish we could do more of that
0: i think that it follows actually really nicely that point into the kind of vignette that you i would say paint honestly in your piece at the end of almost akin to plato's the city in speech the law school in thought which is this place where you go through and you walk through and it doesn't just say that it does the things that you care about, it has embraced them, internalized them, and created them. It's made them real, right? I I would ask that you kind of walk us through that. What to your mind is this law school that can be, is not yet, but it is really valuable to create?
1: Yeah. Um, so I have to give a shout out to my research assistant, uh, Peter Angelica. Uh, Who actually has a background in philosophy? So when you mentioned Plato, maybe this is why he was thinking this. He actually suggested to me um, adding something, and this is basically when the uh, piece was just like a germ of an idea, like you know, had an outline. And he suggested adding something about what my ideal law school would look like, Um, and he said that, and. Um, I did not immediately think of Plato, but I thought of some of my favorite pieces of critical race theory scholarship. Um, um, you know, which you know, in lots of CRT, they use lots of personal narrative, and I was thinking not just of sort of the personal narrative pieces, like you know, Cheryl Harris's um, essay, um, you know, the whiteness of property. but I was also thinking about critical race theorists like Derrick Bell and Richard Agado who actually incorporate fiction um, in their legal scholarship to communicate ideas. Um, So when my RA, Peter Angelica, suggested like, oh, why don't you have your own vision of what the law school would look like, I I thought of that. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have so much fun. I know exactly what I want to do. So that was sort of the genesis for the idea of having um, the piece end with my imagining, my actually going into my ideal law school. I should also sort of say, um, uh, I do not want the piece to sort of come across as like, okay, this is the ideal law school and everybody needs to subscribe to this, it's really just my vision. Um, but, you know, in my ideal law school, uh, it sort of goes beyond sort of the idea of like, a place that's you know, very diverse. Obviously, it's a place with a different kind of architecture, it's a place where the curriculum is different. Uh, where the dynamic between professors and students um, is different. It's a place where the, um, uh, the dynamic between the inside of the law school and outside of the law school is very different. So it's a place where uh, the community feels welcome to come um, onto the premises. It's really not like a dividing line between the law school and the community around it. Um, And basically I just wanted to play and have some fun with what I'm hoping law school could one day be, uh, which is a place that really encourages radical thought. Um, And um, one of my uh, um, favorite scholars, Bell Hooks has this great quote about schools that I'm, I'm blanking on off the top of my head, but it's all about like how the school, the classroom itself could be this radical place. Um, and that's what I'm really aiming for. The idea that students could come to law school and, instead of being channeled into a particular way of being a lawyer or into a particular career, that law school can really let students explore and students simply become Whatever they want to become, Um, you know nothing irks me more. You know, and I'm probably going to piss off people at my own law school. (laughs) But nothing irks me more when colleagues uh, say that you know, well, our job is to prepare students to enter law firms. Um, um, That's certainly not. I, I mean, I'm I'm happy for my students to go to law firms. But I'm hoping schools can do more um, because uh, there's a lot that needs to change about the world we're living in. <laughs> and if we're just preparing students to go to law firms and make money, uh, then as far as I'm concerned, uh, we're not doing what we could be doing to prepare students to really build a better world. And I think that's that's my goal. And teaching students, I'm hoping that they're thinking about building a better world. Um, and increasingly, um, I think that in the context of the classes I teach. Um, so, as I mentioned, you know, one of my core classes is criminal law, and I'm constantly thinking these days. Um, you know, and I didn't think this when I first started teaching. So this has been an evolution, but certainly in the last several years, as I've Uh, read more and more about abolition. Um, You know, as I think about abolition, um, you know, for a couple of years, I was describing myself as abolition curious, um, but I think I'm like quickly becoming like, you know, on on board with abolition. I'm constantly asking, well, well, how do I teach criminal law if I think the entire system is flawed at its core? Um, How do I teach it without... um, legitimizing it um you know and i think increasingly people are wrestling with that issue um you know i when i first started teaching i think one of my goals was i was hoping lots of my students would become prosecutors i was hoping lots of my students would become defense lawyers and now i'm thinking well i'm happy if they do that (laughs) but i also know that uh they're becoming part of a machinery of injustice if they do that um so i think you know increasingly people are wondering like even people who want to do defense work can you be an abolitionist and do defense work well all those two things incompatible are they intention because you're still part of the system and as somebody teaching from the law i wrestle with that same issue um
0: I I think it's deeply interesting that you mention that, because before I came to law school, I was a philosophy major. Shout out to your research assistant. I'm glad that he also experienced the, I would say the brain forming that is a philosophy education in college. And it isn't all that different than the kind of brain forming that goes on in law school, except the purposes are immensely different, right? The reason why I mention that is that that professor for me, my most important professor, had a conversation with me where he told me you've been a really solid student. I've enjoyed having you in my ethics classes. Don't let law school change the entire way that you think about the world. And of course, I dutifully promised him, no, that would never happen to me. Never, ever. And then one day I woke up working at the United States Attorney's Office in one of the districts at a job that I knew that I was going to really want to get experience in. And I realized that Law school had absolutely changed how I saw everything about the world and how I went about my day, how I thought about the cases before me, how I abstracted away the individuals that I was working towards helping my mentors either prosecute for civil issues, um, usually civil actions related to money, or incarcerate. And I realized that slowly but surely, and then in an absolute instant, I was a different person than I was after I had left college. And I do struggle with that. And I wonder, you know, in your struggles with thinking about abolition or how to fundamentally change how we think about going about the doing of law, are there any conclusions that maybe you've come to that perhaps might enlighten people like myself that really do struggle with this in terms of where their career is going and how to square that with the person they want to be?
1: lee that's the million dollar question and i should i should add uh you know i I was i was a federal prosecutor for close to a decade (laughs) which is you know looking back i mean talk about sort of like you know uh buying into the system um i I definitely did that Uh, I, i i took everything for granted um so your question actually makes me think of something that i uh now tell students um when they talk to me about um, you know, concerns they might have um, as they go into um being a prosecutor or doing defense work, um you know, because those are the students who are really asking me questions. You know, the students going to law firms don't ask me <laughs> But you know, students going to um, uh, prosecutor's office, offices who, are concerned about sort of the inequities in the system. Um, students going into defense who are concerned about the inequities of the system occasionally ask me, like, do I have any advice? And the advice I give them, I think, is sort of similar to what I could imagine giving to almost anybody who's about to go to law school or about to go into a particular career, which is, um, you know, and, and maybe I should have, you know, had this advice given to me when I started out, but I tell students like, you know, why don't you like just write down like five or 10 things that are important to you, um, put that list someplace and just keep referring to it. And, you know, if, if you have like five or six or 10 or whatever number of ideas of things that you want to be true to, of things that matter to you, write it down and just refer to it occasionally And make sure that everything you're doing is consistent with that because i will tell you lee uh like one of one of the most interesting experiences i had as a federal prosecutor was having sort of a newish prosecutor who'd only been in the office for like you know a handful of months come to me sort of saying oh you know they want to send me to the narcotics unit i don't want to go i don't like the idea of sending people away with these mandatory minimums because we had those back then And I sort of said to her, well, you know, everybody goes to the narcotics unit. It's like, you know, just do it. Uh, Which, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but she did that. And literally within a couple of weeks, she was coming back to me so excited because she'd sent somebody away for 20 years. Like literally it took her just a couple of weeks to go from like, I don't want to put somebody away for too long to like, oh, putting away somebody for a long time is actually good because that's what the office rewarded. And so, you know, if I could go back in time, I would just say like, stay true to yourself. And one way to do that is to sort of keep yourself in check by having a list of things that you want to, um, you know, be true about that serve as your moral compass.
0: Taking that and then moving it towards creating the, the law school and speech, if you will. Is there anything that you think that students can do? Because for me personally, I feel that students are actually far more powerful than maybe we give ourselves credit for in pushing law schools to become the places we want them to be. Are there things that we can do that would really help? I, I would say, realize this idealization, of or ideation, of your paper? yeah. I
1: mean, I think it's so much of it. Uh, you know, it's just keep pushing, keep demanding more. Uh, it's really one of the hardest things um, um, that I see from my perspective is uh, you know the turnover. Like law school is three years, um, and sometimes I, ha- I hate to say it. Sometimes like it feels like the administration is just waiting for students to graduate <laughs> because you know there's so little you could do in three years. But if everybody is pushing a little bit. And if everybody is sort of saying to like the class that comes after them, you need to keep pushing. These are the things we're pushing for. Then change does happen. I mean, I've seen it at my own school where, you know, students have been agitating for change and the school is slowly changing. Um, You know, it's going to take a while because, you know, everything is so ingrained. uh, There's so much path dependence. Everything is, Everything is so wedded to U.S. News and World Report rankings. and like all of these other things that sort of get in the way. Um, But uh, when students push, um, faculty listens.
0: Well, Professor Capers, thank you so much for being on. This has been an absolute pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. And and thank you for publishing the piece. It it came out great. um, And it seems to be getting lots of attention. So thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Experto Credo podcast. All the opinions discussed in this podcast are the opinions solely of the authors and myself and do not reflect their institutions, nor do they reflect the opinions of the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, the Minnesota Law Review, or any other parties.